You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. It's June 10th, 2015. This is Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today we'll hear my conversation with director Rodney Asher, whose horror documentary The Nightmare opened here at the Film Society last Friday. For his follow-up to 2012's Room 237, which explored theories and conspiracies surrounding Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, Rodney Asher turned his attention to the subject of sleep paralysis. In the film, he interviews eight people who suffer from the affliction to alarming degrees. One is even convinced that it will be the cause of his death. The interviews are cross-cut with surreal and vivid reenactments of the dreams they describe. In these, Asher uses horror genre elements to evoke the overwhelming fear that consumes and haunts the storytellers. The Nightmare has been gathering buzz since its premiere at Sundance last winter, where critics praised its inventive style and distinctive take on the documentary form. It began its official theatrical run here at the Film Society last Friday, and on this occasion, Rodney Asher stopped by for a Q&A after the screening. While a packed house enjoyed the film, I sat down with the director in our green room to talk about it. Our conversation began with his own experiences with sleep paralysis. And from there, we touched on subjects like artifice, directorial presence, and the supernatural. So let's go now to my conversation with director Rodney Asher. Hi there, this is Violet Luca from Film Comment. The annual New York Asian Film Festival begins June 26th and runs through July 11th. This year's edition boasts exciting North American premieres of new films, a special spotlight on female Korean directors, and a Lifetime Achievement Award for Hong Kong action director Ringo Lam. Not sure where to dive into the three-week festival? Check out the current May-June issue of Film Comment for a special section on Korean cinema or download our digital anthology about Hong Kong film available on the Film Comment website. And now, back to the close-up. All right, I'm sitting here with director Rodney Asher. It's opening night of his new film, The Nightmare. Thank you very much for talking to us, first of all. Thanks for being interested in this crazy little movie. (laughs) All right, so first of all, um, it's a movie about sleep paralysis, and you mentioned in the film that you've experienced this. So I wanted to start by asking when this became an idea for a film and um, how your own experience informed the film. Well, um, you know, it happened to me 15, maybe 20 years ago now. I'm a little afraid to do the math, but I was, you know, just out of college, and at the time, I was sure it was a supernatural experience, and it was years before I found out that, you know, it was co- that it's considered a sleep disorder, and that it was something that happened to other people. Um, like, in fact, there's a, the second chapter of the movie. It's called "It's a Thing," and it seems like there are stages that everybody goes through who experiences it. And you know, I I call "It's a Thing," the stage where you discover you're not alone, yeah. and that, um, and, and, and that it's happened to other people. And, you know, certainly you, you, something like that happens and you don't forget it too quickly. And, you know, it took a while for the idea of this to be a film to come together. You know, the, the trigger that might have actually inspired it was a friend 
um, who told me about the psychedelic drug DMT, mm-hmm. which actually gets featured in Enter the Void. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are and people who take it apparently see you know these you know see these things and you know part of the weirdness of it is that different people see similar things which you know has led to a whole school of thought that you know um maybe it's not a hallucination coming from inside but maybe it's a heightened state of awareness you know, that you're sensitive to something that's real but usually invisible mm-hmm. and you know i thought that was pretty fascinating for a long time and at a certain point and I'm not sure exactly when I connected it to sleep paralysis in my own experience and I started researching sleep paralysis and this was probably in the wake of of room 237 and I was you know considering what I wanted to do next and you know I found hundreds and hundreds of people sharing their stories and searching for answers and like struggling with that question mm-hmm. of these things I see are they is it my is my mind playing tricks on me or am I seeing something that's very scary and very disturbing but real um and that's a question that you know I found kind of um endlessly fascinating yeah yeah I mean that's the the central question of the film is is like whether this is supernatural or something that we can explain scientifically. I mean, it's really interesting to me to hear that you immediately thought your own experience was supernatural. Um, can you talk about how maybe that changed for you making the film, like how your thinking about this changed? Well, you know, it might be, what's the phrase, like thesis, antithesis, synthesis? I think I've got that. Antithesis. Antithesis, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, that... How, when it happened to me, uh, I had no, I had, I, I had no reason to search for answers. I knew what had happened. Mm-hmm. I had had a supernatural experience, and then I discovered sleep paralysis, and a weight was lifted off of my shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I said, and, and my search stopped. And I said, "Great, that makes total sense." And my worldview can go back to what it was before. Mm-hmm. And I went, you know, very happily back to my old life. Um, you know, again, what was fascinating about the people. You know, seven of the eight people who are featured in the film and, you know, the bulk of what I've seen, um, you know, in reading people's firsthand accounts, you know, is that that notion that the scientific explanation wasn't enough for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I read more of their experiences and talked to them more, um, I wouldn't say that my switch was flipped, but a door was opened. Mm-hmm. You know that it made me more ready to um, consider other possibilities, and you know, sort of, no matter which way you fall on that equation, there's a loose thread or two, you know, that that complicate it, you know, that make it messy, you know, that make it blurry, you know, and as much as it's about, as this film is about sleep paralysis, you know, I like to think it's about other things too. Yeah, and you know, that you know. It can prompt conversations, you know, about, about about all sorts of stuff. Well, there's certainly the the subject of how film influences us and how that kind of I think somebody uses the word feedback, where there's kind of this cyclical thing of it's hard to know when things start, like whether it's we can have nightmares that are influenced from film, or films are made kind of because we all 
have nightmares about similar things. So I guess my question is, how did that come into play when deciding how to film these reenactments? Like, there's a very distinct style. Um, I was curious if you look to other films, horror films or any films, um, for references for that or what kind of influence that? Sure. Um, well, I mean, to to talk about your first point, you know, and the, that sort of feedback loop, I mean, that was sort of something that was maybe a little surprising mm -hmm. um, that only upon, you know, doing my reading and then um, talking to people, something that, um, uh, an idea that, that we, we came across again and again and again is the kind of chicken and the egg question, mm -hmm. you know, that, I mean, sure, there are horror movies. Those only go back 117 years or, you know, um, however long. You know, but you can go back further to myth, folklore, even religious stories. Um, there's a notion that the Salem witch trials were inspired by people experiencing sleep paralysis. Um, you know, certainly there's that painting that we feature in the film by Fuseli. Um, there's notions of, you know, the incubus, the succubus. You know, these ideas of dark, shadowy intruders that come at you in your sleep go back a long time. Mm -hmm. And the idea that there could be a two-way relationship between these things, you know, um, somebody has a nightmare or a sleep paralysis experience that inspires, you know, the telling of a story, the making of an image, somebody sees that image and then has, and, and then that informs their experience. Like, how many times does that get processed through or is it even a a deeper part of your brain mm -hmm. you know some um you know some cultural memory of um you know intruders yeah. you know um so that was a question you know that i found you know kind of fascinating um you know and when you're talking about you know visual references certainly because there's a lot of you know just on the surface interview question and answer discussion of horror movies in this film. People who say either this experience was like a horror movie, this experience was scarier than a horror movie, mm -hmm. um, or then what surprised me again, people saying after I saw the film I watched a horror movie and that horror movie reminded me of my experience, particular mm -hmm. horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street or Communion or Insidious. Um, all those things made me feel very comfortable in working in a horror movie style, mm -hmm. you know, for the reenactments and using horror movie um, 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 devices. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the other thing I wanted to do, um, you know, as far as this film being a documentary, you know, was to acknowledge, you know, the artifice. You know, which also helped us on a practical level because this is a very low-budget film, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know, but I decided to shoot it all in a soundstage. The idea, you know, and you know, kind of where I came down on it was I wanted everything to look good. It didn't all have to look real. Yeah. But um, we also were, you know, tried to be, you know, very expressive, you know, in some of the imagery. If you're talking about, you know, influences, I made a 90-minute reel of, you know, influences for, uh, you know, for the reenactments that, you know, a bunch of us sat down to watch. You know, and that included um, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, um, an episode of Lost in Space where Penny found herself trapped on the wrong side of a mirror, um, The Thin Blue Line, mm -hmm. um, 
Paul Schrader's Patty Hearst. There's a Michelle uh, Gondry video for the Chemical Brothers. I think it's Let Forever Be. Mm-hmm. Um, also Dogville and um, Our Town. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I think it's a, a 70s version of uh, Our Town made for PBS with um, Hal Holbrook. You know, a lot of stuff and a lot of things coming, you know, seemingly from different places. But I don't know, for me, like emotionally, when I saw that stuff, I had similar reactions in that I wanted. And you know, so I kind of was you know, trying to inspire the reaction that I had as a kid when I experienced a lot of this stuff for the first time mm-hmm. you know, in the audience of the film. You know, and of course, you know, Bridger Nielsen, you know, our cinematographer who's worked on horror movies. He shot The Pact, you know, among other films. Um, you know, brings an incredible familiarity with how, you know, that genre works, you know, to the table. Was there any, what was the collaboration like with the subjects? Like, would, did you try to get it as close to their kind of recollection of these things as possible, or was that kind of not part of it? I don't know, there was sort of a give and take between reproducing things they say closely, but wanting to be expressive, mm-hmm. like in other, in, in other moments. I mean, I, during most interviews, I had them sketch out the things that they had seen, and we would use that as a guide for, um, you know, what the, um, you know, what the shadow people would look like. But certainly, you know, things like that bed that's on that pile of stuffed animals, that represents, you know, what, what, what he's saying. But I don't think that it really, you know, looked like that. Right. You know, and, um, but for some reason, that kind of felt, you know, like a childhood memory. You know, and I was drawing on a couple of influences uh, for that one. I, mean, I think something else that you had touched on earlier, you know, was having gone through it myself, how does that affect, you know, these recreations? And, and for one thing, you know, it helped me, you know, decide how the shadow people would move, you know, the way they would walk, mm-hmm. you know, how elaborate the costume would be, you know, and it was very, very simple, <laughs> you know. Um, and there were questions about, like, would we see his ears? And I didn't quite necessarily, I didn't, I couldn't quite remember. So we had, you know, the guy try on the costume. And when I first saw, you know, the man in the costume, it was, you know, upsetting for my personal demon to, you know, (laughs) appear again after so many years right in front of me. And, you know, the guy who in the costume, Stephen, you know, screwed me a little bit walking, (laughs) you know, for him, ah, you know, get back. But, like, he had the whole head mask on, and I was looking at the way that the mask kind of bowed out. And, no, that's not right. And it's like, cut, cut holes for the ears. And I'm like, yeah, I might, have, I might have thought on paper that the ears were kind of silly, but that's closer, hmm. you, know, you, you know, to what he looked like. Yeah. You know, and we don't need to make him stretch him out to unrealistic proportions, you know, based on, no, that's not what it looked like he, yeah. it just looked like a, it just looked like a slender you know silhouette of a person so yeah. i was able to uh draw on that as well i want to go back to the thing about the artifice um sure. there's the shot of the actor the shadow person actor yeah. walking out of the set and you kind of pull back the curtain for a moment and it's it was jarring to me i mean because up until that point you do have little hints of you're not trying to hide the artifice but at that point you're just calling it out can you talk a little bit about the intention of that well you know it's a dangerous thing um you know um, one thing i learned making room 237 you know (laughs) is that you know directors explaining exactly what they what what they meant you know by specific choices um is dangerous Mm -hmm. and a lot of them avoid it Mm -hmm. 
I kind of came at that piece, I don't know, from a couple of places. Um, you know, certainly showing the artifice in the reenactments was a way for me to kind of put my cards on the table, you know, as, you know, this film is a lot, you know, is in a space between a couple different genres, but it is also a documentary. Mm-hmm. And I thought that revealing some of the artifice was kind of like, was a way of being more honest. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to have shot in a real bedroom with what looks like a spy camera right. in the upper corner to suggest that maybe we had a camera that was able to capture these experiences as they happened mm-hmm. um, and try to pass that off, you know, as reality. And I was happy to do something that's clearly, clearly staged. Um, I mean, for me, I think one, one of the inspirations for that sequence is there's a movie called, uh, a Japanese film called Double Suicide. Mm-hmm. And there's an amazing scene where it's kind of a Japanese Romeo and Juliet story. And every once in a while you see these characters who are all dressed in black, and that's, I'm going to insist it's a coincidence, but it's a strange coincidence. But apparently, um, you know, that costume that they wore was sort of like Jap- a traditional Japanese puppeteer costume. And... There And you see them at the beginning of the film sort of doing a puppet show. And then it's kind of suggested that the, that the, that the characters in the film are sort of puppets. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where, like, it's, it, it's leading to a double suicide where, you know, a lover is going to kill his, um, kill his girlfriend and then himself. And I think there's a moment, it's been years since I've seen this film, but where he's sort of equivocating and he's not sure that he wants to do it. And then this puppeteer just like walks into the stage and it puts a, and it just puts a knife in his hand and pushes him forward. And it seemed also like like there's a Looney Tunes cartoon, you know, where like the animator is kind of screwing with, with Daffy Duck. Right. The idea that um, the monsters have access moving through the set that the real people don't and that the filmmakers are on their side mm-hmm. was felt kind of eerie to me that you know because the it's a behind the scene shot but it's not a real behind the scene shot yeah you know and people in the movie are meditating on the difference between what's real and what's not real or struggling to know what's real and what's not real which seemed to suggest that it would be fair to include fil- scenes in this movie that are from different types of reality, different levels of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, is a behind-the-scenes shot of reenactment real in a way that an interview that is lit is not real? Mm. You know, um, you know, they're both kind of real and kind of not real. Right. Um, yeah, so that the idea that like by having access to the film set, the the creatures could move from um, Torrance, California to Manchester, England, like through the portal of the film set. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I know I'm already going to a place. I've, I've tried to articulate this before, and it's just kind of broken down into the pretentious um, ro- um, dead-end dead roads. But, like, there's a connection in, you know, like the subconscious in a film set. You know, and Louisa Van Leer, who's the concept artist, was pushing a lot of these ideas and like you know the detritus that you have in your subconscious is kind of like set walls and props and costumes mm-hmm. um like i know when i see that stuff in like in paul schrader's patty hearst or in our town um it looks like it's taking place in a subconscious 
you know, sort of place mm -hmm. um, that the questions that, that we're working with in the movie kind of reminded me of. Mm -hmm. um, oh my God, that was probably 15 minutes of <laughs> metaphysical blather. Uh, <laughs> I apologize. Oh, great. I mean, this kind of related. I was looking at this film in comparison to Room 237. I remembered a moment in that film where one of the subjects is describing the opening of The Shining. And, and he's talking about seeing the face of Stanley Kubrick in the clouds. And I, I love this moment because it, you, you just show it and you, you step slow motion, but you don't try to outline where we're supposed to see it or you just kind of show it. And, and at that point, your role in that film is kind of to have a non-presence, it seems. Like you aren't trying to force your opinion um, or show your cards as much. Um, I mean, and in this film, you're literally in it, so that's a big difference. And then it seems like this is more about, a little bit more about your subjective experience because you are directing reenactments of this. Mm -hmm. And um, so your authorship, your presence is felt much more. Um, can you talk about that? Like if that's something that you thought about going into this? It is. Um... You know, though I, I think it's from I think it's just a matter of degrees. Mm -hmm. You know, um, certainly there's less of me in room two three seven, but you know I was often trying to suggest ideas by the pictures that I would, by the juxtaposition of images over what people are saying, because mm -hmm. sometimes it was literally like that one moment mm -hmm. what they were saying, but other times I would try to find things that worked in counterpoint, um, or like there was a discovery that I made. Um, while working on the film that I just kind of put out there. I, I, I spent an unhealthy amount of time reading what other people wrote about the movie, <laughs> but I didn't uh, come across anybody calling out this one specific moment that was important to me. Mm -hmm. But there's a moment where um, Bill Blakemore is talking about um, the Wendy Carlos uh, score and the feeling that it has and what it in the emotional uh, effect it has during that helicopter shot at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And as I was searching, you know, he, he I think he said, like, there's trilling voices on it, mm -hmm. and it sounded like the voice of ghosts or, you know, um, uh, you know, or spirits. Yeah. And instinctually I thought that I wanted to look to uh, silent films to illustrate that moment. I didn't think that I would find a contemporary ghost that wouldn't cheapen the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that took me to Faust. Mm -hmm. And as I was looking through that, not only did I find, you know, these, you know, tormented spirits, you know, floating, you know, that, to my money, made that scene and made that music even more effective, mm -hmm. um, which I didn't know, which I, which I wasn't sure could happen. Mm -hmm. I also found a scene where... Um, Faust, um, Faust and Mephisto are on a magic carpet kind of coming around a mountain towards like sort of a castle. Mm -hmm. And there's like a river at the base of it. And it's a miniature. You know, it was before, you know, helicopter shots were, were, were very common in film. Mm -hmm. And it looked a lot to me like the opening helicopter shot in The Shining. And, you know, I researched it best I could, and I couldn't find that anybody had mentioned that Faust was a reference, um, a direct reference for The Shining, although there is a moment where Jack sits at the bar and says, 
I'd sell my soul for a drink, mm-hmm. you know, making a Faustian bargain. Yeah. And there's a legend that, um, you know, Kubrick watched every significant horror movie ever made in preparation, you know, for The Shining. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Murnau's Faust um, was quite l- possibly on that list. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know, for five seconds, you know, I, cu- I cut to that as my own little, right. as my own little discovery. Um, so between that and, you know, there are, there are interventions in that film that I feel are my voice, but in a much, in, in a subtler way. And I have one line at the very, I have one question, one, one off screen voiceover question on at the end. Um, and I'm much more present in this film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a lot, and this film is also, I don't know, I guess a warmer film. You know, we see, you know, the, it's more personal with the subjects when we see their faces, you know, which, you know, I think if you're working, you know, in sort of a horror mode, it's important to, you know, identify, you know, with the people. Mm-hmm. And I think by seeing them, you could um, have a stronger connection to them. Um, and you see the look in their eye and you can understand, you know, how they feel about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to see as much as they were, it, the ones who were still living in the same places where they had these experiences, see the rooms that the, that these experiences took place in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's more personal about these people as individuals rather than the embodiment of certain ideas. Right. And, you know, there's, we get to, we get to experience a, my ambition was that in 237 we would get to experience these people as individuals too and that they would through their voiceovers have enough um have enough moments you know that we could kind of get a sense of their personality and them as people but this one is even is is more is more personal they're more because because we you know spend time with them you know physically um you know and I thought because I had the same experience that by sharing that with the people that I spoke to, um, you know, we could make that, that we could have a stronger connection that I went thing, I went through this thing too, mm-hmm. you know, I'm curious, you know, how your experience was and where you come from it, you know, that I'm not, you know, a complete outsider here to gawk. I'm, you know, somebody who's gone through the same thing, um, who's interested in exploring this with you. Yeah. So I opened up myself a little bit, you know, to them, um, you know, and I told Bridger, if in the course of one of those conversations, you know, I find myself, you know, talking about this stuff, feel free to pan over, um, which was about as comfortable as I was appearing in it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there are people, you know, who've had great success being front and center kind of hosts with the microphone in front of a camera. And there's a way there's a version of this film where it would be somebody who addresses the camera and says, Hey, I've gone through this and I'm on a search, yeah. you know, and I don't know if it's just my self-consciousness that makes me not comfortable to do that. Or if I just want, or if I wanted my presence to be, you know, subtler, I kind of describe it as, um, you know, less than Michael Moore, but more than Errol Morris, you right. know, for how much <laughs> I appear in the movie. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly because I shot these reenactments, I do feel more naked, mm-hmm. On this one, you know, um, I think it was it would it, be, it it is easier for me to distance you know myself from what's going on in two three seven um, right. than I am uh, in this one, and you know, 
which was just clear that's where this one was going. So I, you know, I, I let it go that way. <laughs> so have you been in contact with the subject since you've made it, and have they, like, seen the finished film? Seven of the eight have. Um, the only guy who hasn't is waiting to see it on the big screen tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, I'm still in touch with them. Um, there are, you know, some of them I talk to more often mm -hmm. than others, and one in particular, Chris, yeah. um, who bookends the film, came out to Sundance. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and so we both spent time there, and, you know, um, you know, he was able to talk a lot about the film and... Um, um, was the experience at all cathartic to him or any of the subjects, like talking about all of this with somebody? I would have thought so. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I would have thought that a lot of the feedback from people who are in it was would have been, yes, that was my experience, or, eh, you didn't get that detail right. For the most part, they haven't been that interested in that conversation okay. they're interested in seeing oh that's what's happening to other it was very interesting for me to see how other people's experience was <laughs> um, or I'm happy that this story is getting out there I hope that this will lead to a discussion a, a, a bigger discussion of it mm -hmm. the catharsis I've seen has been you know from the people in the audience who have experienced the same thing mm -hmm. you know and if you've seen the movie um, you know it's a lot of things but it's not necessarily designed or doesn't look like something especially therapeutic right. um, but you know I've been getting a ton of emails a ton of messages and people who come and, and people after the screening who are just relieved to find out that they are not the only ones yeah. you know no, no matter you know I, I, I guess no matter what you're going through there's something reassuring of knowing that other people have been there first yeah because um, um, I think a lot I think there's a you know there may be a stigma of talking about this kind of thing so a lot of people suffer in silence yeah um, and it is I think it is something very universal because I probably experienced something close to it but I don't think I've experienced this but it's still something that was very seemed very close to my experience and it really affected me to the point where I was like I went to bed scared that I would experience it. Um, I mean, have you had, have you gotten that reaction a lot? And are you like, how do you feel about people like maybe getting this from this film? Yeah, well, a couple people, you know, and there was a guy on Twitter who said that he got it after, you know, watching the trailer. <laughs> um, you know, I don't want, I'm, I'm happy to scare them in the theater. I'm hoping not to damage, you know, their, their 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 sleeping patterns. But I mean, even as you talk about it, you laugh a little bit that you can't help but see it as the, the sort of William Castle, um, you know, connection of the horror coming out of the screen. Um, you know, um, there is a guy in the film who, you know, talks about it being, you know, spread by talking about it. Um, you know, which. You know, before I had, you know, before we got to any questions of is that dangerous, I was like, well, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a that 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 that's that that that's a reason to keep it in, and it's scary, and because sleep paralysis is scary, you know, I want this movie to be scary. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not trying to do a 90-minute live-action um, adaption of the WebMD page of sleep paralysis. I'm trying to put the audience into the heads of 
folks who are going through this yeah. to w sort of be with them as they struggle to understand, as they try to decide what's real, what's not real. And, you know, to take a, an opportunity myself to try to, you know, kind of meditate on horror and where does it come from and um, what do these images mean and why do they, you know, why, why do they persist? Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this last night because I watched it by myself in my living room. And I was thinking about, since it does operate a lot like a horror film, um, it, that it would be probably best experienced in a theater with an audience full of people. Um, and I've gathered from reading other interviews with, with you about Room 237 that that was a little bit of like a surprise success where... Um, that film, I mean, it's like more in the realm of a video essay, which is like normally on, I mean, that film shouldn't be on YouTube, but do you kind of see what I'm getting at? Um, this, this film is like yeah. kind of the other way. And I was wondering if the experience of Room 237 having success influenced your desire to make something that was more theatrical for like a lack of a better way to say it. You know, I don't know if that's the way I looked at it. Um, I mean, two three seven was a you know I, I, was a huge su su surprise to me how wide it broke. You know, I thought I was making an underground movie. You know, I thought it was going to play, you know, at alternative storefront cinemas with you know twenty five folding metal chairs. You know, and a consumer you know video projector mm -hmm. you know connected to a DVD player. Um, you know, was kind of where I thought that movie was destined. But as we were getting into Sundance, if nothing else, the score and the sound design got kind of big, you know, and I loved how it played in a theater. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I kind of think, you know, that there are a lot of video essays that would play really well in a theater. You know, I think that those, you know, Red Letter Media 90-minute Star Wars reviews mm -hmm. would kill yeah. in a theater. Um, or that um, Transformers pre-make oh, yeah. desktop. I think that would. I think that would be a great experience in a theater. Mm -hmm. It's funny, try like you know because this comes out day and date. I tell a lot of people, see it in a theater if you can. It's got a huge sound design, and actually we had the same same composer, Jonathan Snipes. He were, did the music for this film, but he also did the sound design. Um, and I and I think you can really feel that that the sound effects are coming from sort of the same world as as the music and there's actually a lot of like field recordings mm -hmm. um in there this guy chris flieger does amazing field recordings he'll set up he'll leave microphones in the jungle or by a lake you know and scroll through them and find you know animal sounds mm -hmm. and things um so yeah i mean because of the the surround sound design um and because it's fun to see oh this person jump or to hear a couple people laugh it plays really well in the theater. Um, you know, the, your experience watching it alone in the middle of the night is probably a really good one, too. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, just so long as it's not, you know, on a laptop through, you know, a teeny built-in speaker, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, which might which might diminish it. Um, you know, as far as like 237, I mean, what 237 enabled me, the success of 237 enabled me to work on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the challenge I wanted in whatever was the next film was to, you know, create original imagery. Um, as much as I like working with archival material, 
um, and I, you know, would like to do it again. Um, I wanted to, sh- I, w- I, want- I wanted to make my own images, mm-hmm. you know, this go round. Yeah. So can you talk about what, what might be next for you? I mean, it seems like you've kind of carved out a very distinctive style of, of this specific kind of documentary. Will that continue or have you gotten that far yet? The short answer is no. I've got a half dozen things I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, half of them are documentary and half of them are narrative. And I do want to take this style further and do more, you know, do more documentary and let it bleed into, you know, other other styles of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but, no, I've actually, you know, I've been babysitting, you know, this movie, um, you know, and, and, and trying to get the word out and... Um, um, not entirely sure what's next. Okay. Well, thank you very much. The film is The Nightmare. It is now playing at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks, Mike. Good to talk to you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.